As we begin this morning, let me just say that it's not difficult at all to find example after example of people who have shipwrecked their faith for the love of money. In fact, the Bible's full of them, both Old and New Testament. For example, do you remember the book of Joshua and the sin of Achan? Israel had just conquered the city of Jericho in miraculous fashion, marching around the perimeter seven times before shouting. Then the walls come a-tumbling down, so they rightly dedicated the victory and the spoils to the Lord, but not Achan. Instead, for Achan, the love of money consumed him, and he stole a beautiful garment, 200 pieces of silver, and a gold bar. And how did it go for good old Achan? Not well. Stoned to death. Or how about Solomon? Solomon allowed the love of money and the love of women to shipwreck his relationship with the Lord. 1 Kings 10 tells us all about it. Verse 23 says, King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought his presence and brought him articles of silver and gold, garments and spices, horses and mules, year after year. And King Solomon loved foreign women. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives and his money turned his heart after other gods, other idols, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. Or how about Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Surely you remember that story. Coming right out of Acts chapter 2 to 4, so the day of Pentecost, where, where Peter so faithfully preaches the gospel, and the people were pierced to the heart, and they cry out saying, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 souls were added to their number who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they had all things in common. Why did they have all things in common? Because they sold their stuff and they shared with anyone in need. So Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property and they decide to keep back some of the money for themselves. Which, by the way, was totally fine. In fact, Peter says in verse 4, Ananias, while the property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why then is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, this deed to deceitfully keep back some of the money? Peter says, Ananias, you have not lied to man, but to God. How did it go for Ananias? Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell to the ground and died, as did Sapphira. I could go on and on, example after example. But what's the issue in all three scenarios? I mean, is the problem really money in and of itself? No. The issue is not money. The issue is the love of money. So the problem is a heart that loves money more than it loves God. Loves materialism, loves stuff, loves storing up treasures on earth, loves ease and comfort and having things and accumulating wealth. And a heart that allows the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things to be valued, to be treasured, and to be delighted in more than God. And the kingdom of God. So the issue is priorities, isn't it? 
that they valued the earthly over the eternal. Hence the title for my sermon this morning, Kingdom Priorities. Because that's exactly where Jesus is going to go in the Sermon on the Mount. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 811. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, encourage you to have your Bible open. Matthew 6, page 811. As you're turning, let me quickly remind you of where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Jesus does not lower the bar for righteousness. Instead, he raises it. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he closes Matthew 5 by declaring, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you have to understand as we start that the only way to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect and to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is to put your faith in the Lord Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven, so that they can be paid for, and his righteousness can become your righteousness so that you can go to heaven when you die. But you need to know, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you're given the gift of the Spirit, your life is going to change. It needs to change. It has to change. And it changes in such a way that you can actually do the things that God commands you to do which includes living for the glory of God rather than the praise of men. We just saw that, chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. It includes loving the Lord rather than money, what we're looking at today, verses 19 to 24. It includes seeking the kingdom rather than worrying, being full of anxiety, chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. And it includes not judging others but actually helping others, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. So this morning, we're looking at Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. And the command that we should have kingdom priorities, specifically with regard to our money. So if you would follow along as I read verses 19 to 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus gives us three different metaphors. So commanding us, number one, to lay up treasures in heaven, number two, to fix our eyes on eternal things, and number three, to devote ourselves to God. But in those three metaphors, Jesus is really saying one thing. He just says it over and over and over again in different ways, that we must have an unswerving loyalty to the kingdom of God. Or in other words, we must have 
kingdom priorities, including laying up treasures in heaven. Verse 19, look at it again. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures, notice, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And and why should we do that? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So A, explanation of priority, not super difficult to understand. Jesus is saying earthly treasures, which include garments or clothes that include things made of metal and steel, as well as the valuables that you store in your home, your shop, or your ever-increasing larger and larger garage. He's saying those earthly treasures are not going to last. Instead, they're going to be destroyed by one means or another. So your garments are going to be eaten by moths. Your metal is going to be corroded by the sun. And anything that's steel is ultimately going to rust. And if your treasures aren't eaten, corroded, or rusted, then they're stolen. What exactly are these treasures? Well, they're anything that you find valuable. That's not the word of God or the souls of men because those are eternal. But your earthly treasures are anything physical that you value, that you find important, that you care about, that you love, and that you treasure. And it doesn't matter if somebody else loves it or not. If it's your treasure, that's your earthly treasure. That's what he's talking about. So what is that for you? Your car? Your boat? Your home? Your jewelry? Your stamp collection? You, you laugh and you're like, I don't care anything about a tra- stamp collection. Yeah, but this guy does. Treasures it. You're like, I don't care about stamps. Coins. You care about coins. Right? Then, then that's your earthly treasure. Could be your books, could be your pictures, could be your favorite appliance. It's your KitchenAid. <laughs> Guys laugh. Maybe it's your grill. Oh, yeah, yeah, the grill. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying, number one, temporal things have no lasting value. Because it really doesn't matter how it gets destroyed, moth, rust, or thieves. Either way, it's not going to make it into eternity. And we know that, don't we? That's why you never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. Temporal things are just that. They're temporary. They do not last. We know that. But we don't live like that, do we? In contrast, number two, eternal things... Eternal living has eternal value. So those who put their faith in Christ and follow the Lord Jesus store up for themselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So these heavenly treasures are things that God approves, that he ordains, that he blesses, and therefore cannot be destroyed, corroded, or taken away. But I want you to look again very closely at verse 20. Because Jesus says something very interesting. He says, he commands us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Just think about that. 
He commands you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So live in such a way, keeping God's commands, walking humbly in his ways, and of course, giving generously to the work of the ministry. Now I say giving because we're obviously talking about money here. Treasures are related to money, and the context is all about money. Verse 24 says, you cannot serve God and money. But think about this. Our natural instinct is to give to those who will give us something in return. But Jesus commands us to give to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, although they can't give us anything in return. But Jesus says you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, Luke 14, 14. So if we give generously to the work of the ministry, meaning to those who could never repay us, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the spiritually lost, the broken, and the needy, Christ guarantees that he will personally reward us in heaven. That's what it means to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Which makes total sense, doesn't it? Because you can never outgive God. So treasure the things that God treasures, the word of God in the souls of men, and God promises to reward us generously in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will reign for all eternity. So we'll be forever in the person we're made for in a glorious place that was made for us. Now, all that being said, nevertheless, Christians still dread the thought of leaving this world behind. Why do you think that is? Well, I can tell you just based on these verses. It's because many Christians have stored up for themselves treasures upon treasures upon treasures in this life, on this earth. So each day that brings them closer and closer to death also brings them further and further away from their treasures. And that's a terrifying thing. Because they're not moving towards their treasures, they're moving away from their treasures. You know, I once heard this story about John Wesley. If you know anything about John Wesley, John Wesley was a straight shooter. He told it the way it was. So Wesley was invited by a wealthy plantation owner to come tour his vast estate. So Wesley stopped by, and the two men rode for hours upon hours on their horses. And yet, during all that time, they only saw a fraction of the man's property. So when they finally made it back to the house and they sat down for dinner, the plantation owner eagerly asked, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think of my vast estate? And Wesley, thinking of this verse, said, I think you're going to have a really hard time leaving it all behind. The man said, Why do you say that? Wesley replied, because you've laid up such vast treasures here on earth, I'm just wondering, what have you laid up in heaven? You know, as I've read these verses, 
that's the exact question that I've been asking myself. What have I laid up for myself in heaven? What am I actively doing on a daily basis, not only to live for eternity, but also to give towards eternity? How am I leveraging my assets for eternal gain? What am I financially giving in a growing way so that there may be more souls in heaven worshiping our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? That's my question for you. What are you actively doing on a daily basis, not only to live for eternity, but to excel still more in giving towards eternity? And how can you excel still more? You know, if you're here thinking to yourself, I give 10%, no more, no less, then I would say to you, great job. But that doesn't exactly jive with Jesus' words here because he's calling for a heart that treasures the things of heaven with finances that back up that desire, meaning we should forever excel still more in that direction, giving more and more and more each year. Doesn't that make sense to you based on this verse? Laying up more and more and more so your heart is longing for eternity and laying up less and less here as you grow closer to eternity. And if you're here not giving at all, then I would say, are you really sure that you love the things of God at all? Jesus explains exactly how this works. So be application of priority. Just look at verse 21. Jesus goes on to say, by way of explanation, application for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, I want to make sure that you get this because you have to be clear. Which comes first, your treasure or your heart? Jesus is crystal clear. It's your treasure. For where your treasure is, is, there will your heart be also. So your heart is a follower, and it's always following wherever you decide to put your treasure. So if you treasure the things of eternity, your heart will follow, and you will love the things of eternity. So Jesus is essentially saying, show me your bank account and your visa statements, and I will show you where your heart is. Because what we do with our money doesn't simply indicate where our heart is. Instead, it determines which way our heart will go. And we know that. We know that just from experience. I mean, what happens if you decide to buy shares in the Ford Motor Company? Well, then all of a sudden, you develop an interest in Ford, right? You start checking the financial pages. You read articles on their new SUV. You search the web for future projections, and you probably even go out and buy a Ford as your next vehicle. Why would you do that? Because that's where you decided to put your treasure. You invested in Ford. So that's where your heart goes, because your heart follows your treasure. Or suppose you start sending money to fund a church plant in India, and there's all of a sudden an earthquake in India. What are you going to do? 
You're going to watch the news. You're going to get updates. You're going to know specifically where is the location and what is the severity and what is the impact on the church plan. And you're going to start fervently praying. Why are you going to do that? Well, because your heart is a follower. Wherever you decide to place your treasure, Ford Motor Company, India Church Plant, there will your heart be also. So surely as the compass needle moves towards north, your heart will surely, absolutely, always and forever follow wherever you decide to put your treasure. You hear what I'm saying? Is everybody in agreement? Do you, do you agree? As you look at the passage, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Okay. Well, then I would say, we need to think long and hard about where we decide to put our treasure. Because God wants your heart. He doesn't even really care about your money, does he? But he does care about your heart. And he wants disciples who are so filled with a vision and a passion for eternity that they wouldn't dream of investing their time, their talents, their treasures, or their prayers anywhere else. Now, of course, giving isn't the only good thing we do with our money. We need to feed, clothe, house, and transport our families. But when the basics are taken care of at a basic level, so not extravagant, why wouldn't the rest go towards laying up treasures in heaven. You know, Randy Alcorn says it so well. The person who lays up treasures on earth spends their whole life backing away from their treasures. So for them, death is loss. But for the person who lays up treasures in heaven, they're looking forward to eternity and they are daily moving towards their treasures for that person to no surprise. Death is gain. By God's grace, let us be a people who are actively laying up treasures in heaven so that our hearts are longing for eternity. But let us also, number two, fix our eyes on eternal things. If you would, follow along as I read verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. This metaphor is a little bit more difficult to understand. We'll walk through a couple of the options. For starters, it's possible that these verses are linked with the preceding paragraph. So if that's the case, the eye as the lamp of the body could be very similar to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there may your heart be also. Meaning, verse 22, for whatever your eye looks at, there will your body be also. In that sense, your body is a follower of whatever your eyes are looking at, good or bad. Or it's possible, and in my judgment, preferable, if we think about the whole body, that is the whole person, as a room in a house. So the purpose of the eye is both outward as well as inward. 
So the eye illuminates the room like a window that lets light in, assuming that it's facing the sun. Therefore, the eye serves as a source of light, which, by the way, is what Jesus says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. So the whole person to be full of light, the eye has to be healthy. So number one, what does it mean for an eye to be healthy? Well, if you look at other translations, you'd find the words good as well as single. And the reason for that is because the word in the original language has a semantic range that includes the singleness of purpose as well as undivided loyalty, which is really helpful to know and actually fits perfectly with the context because the overarching idea in verses 19 to 24 is that the people of God would have an unswerving, undivided loyalty to kingdom priorities. So despite the particulars of our treasures and our money, the main idea is that we would have a singleness of purpose, right? That we would have heart fidelity to God alone. Therefore, the word translated here in the ESV as healthy is really getting after the idea of singleness of purpose or undivided loyalty. So a healthy eye, therefore, is an eye fixed on God unwavering in its focus and constant in its gaze. So an eye that is not distracted by other things, earthly things, worldly things. Just think about the soil types. Mark chapter 4. Soil type number 3 initially responds positively to the Word of God. But then what happens? The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things chokes out the word and it proves unfruitful. So a healthy eye is an undistracted eye that's fixed on God, unwavering in focus, constant in gaze, and consumed with eternal things. And what's the result? Well, the entire person is full of light. Now, can't you just picture a, a beautiful fall day, very similar to this morning, where the sun is shining and your entire living room or, or your kitchen or your office, for us, right, the way the sun comes up, our entire office gets lit up. The, the dining room is the afternoon sun. That's when it gets lit up, right? But on a beautiful day, the sun comes up, comes through the windows, and it lights up the room. It's, it's full of radiant, warm, and invigorating light. It's motivating for me. The light comes up and it's like, let's get some stuff done. Absolutely wonderful. Because the window enables the whole room to be lit up. In the same way, the healthy eye enables the whole person to be lit up. To be full of light. D.A. Carson explains... If we take light to have its usual meaning of revelation and purity, then a person with an eye fixed on kingdom priorities is a person characterized by understanding divinely revealed truth and is unabashedly pure in their behavior. Moreover, being full of light is not limited to the person themselves, but that person will be so full of light that they'll give off light to others. So their unreserved commitment to kingdom priorities is what caused them to become the light of the world. Just like Jesus says. 
Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So make the connection. People with eyes fixed on the things of God will live lives that ultimately and eternally bring glory to God. That's just how it works. Now, by way of contrast, look at what he says. Right, number two, what does it mean for an eye to be bad? Verse 23, Jesus says, if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So to be full of darkness must mean that a person is devoid of revelation and is lacking in purity. So it appears that Jesus is talking about people who are actively deceiving themselves, which makes total sense if you understand that the context is the scribes and the Pharisees, so these hypocritical religious leaders. So if a person thinks their eye is healthy when it's really bad, then they'll talk themselves into believing that they nominally, right, and I use that word purposely, that their nominal loyalty to kingdom priorities is deep and genuine and sincere when in fact it's really shallow and contrived and hypocritical. So it's nominal by definition. It's in name only. That person's darkness, the person who thinks their darkness is light, that person's darkness is the greatest darkness of all. Look again at verse 23. Look at how Jesus says this. But if your eye is bad, like really bad, truly bad, and your whole body, therefore, is full of darkness, if then the light in you is actually darkness. How great is the darkness. Here's the question. Do you have a healthy eye or a bad eye? Meaning, do you have eyes that are fixed on God alone? Because when you have an eye fixed on God alone, then you'll have a life that is lived for the glory of God. That's just how it works, which has everything to do with your money. That's the context, but it's certainly not limited to money, but it certainly includes your time, your talents, your treasures, all that you are. So again, here's the question. Is your eye healthy or is it bad? Is your life really the light of the world? Or is it darkness? We, we would love for there to be some middle position, wouldn't we? Right? You think about this, it, there's only two options. Jesus does not give us a modified position here. Two options, and you evaluate, and you're like, I, I don't know, I'm kind of here. Well, here's not an option. Jesus isn't giving us a modified position. He says it's one or the other. Your eye is either healthy or it's bad. And your life is either seen as the light of the world, letting your light shine in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, or it's darkness. 
Darkness is a life not dedicated, not devoted to the things of God. That life is spiritually dead. I appeal to you to evaluate your life. Evaluate your heart. I'm happy to be helpful to you in that. But boy, oh boy, it would be easy to have a conversation where you just present yourself in a certain way so you look like something. But Jesus is going after your heart. You have to evaluate your heart. Where is your heart at exactly? Do you have a singleness of purpose with regard to eternity? Do you have undivided loyalty in your relationship with God? Or if you're honest, have the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things caused you to be distracted? I appeal to you. Have a healthy eye. Have, have an eye that is fixed on God, unwavering in focus, constant in gaze, and consumed with eternity. And if you think that's too black and white, if you, if you think that's being too rigid, too binary, well then look at what Jesus says in verse 24. Because kingdom priorities means laying up treasures in heaven, fixing our eyes on eternal things, and now three, devoting ourselves to God. Jesus says, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, let me be clear, Jesus is not condemning all wealth. He's not prohibiting money altogether. It's not wrong to have money or to have nice things or a car or a big house or a boat. What Jesus is condemning is the love of money. And that, of course, in contrast to the love of God. Just like Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why is that? Paul says, because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, this love of money, that so many have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. Money's not the problem. It's the love of money, which includes the love of stuff, right? It, it includes materialism rather than being a person who is wholeheartedly devoted to God. In summary, verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. You can't. <laughs> we, we try to make it work all the time. You cannot serve God and something else. To have something else is to have a competing affection, which means that you're divided in your allegiance, which is idolatry. So it's the same thing as serving a false God. We never want to put it in that category when we think about money. But that's what it is. You're serving a false God. Just like the Old Testament examples I started with. That's why Jesus uses such strong language here, right? You will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And I'm telling you, we try to convince ourselves of this all the time. That somehow having a dual allegiance is acceptable. Jesus is saying it's not even possible. We must reject any form of dual allegiance because Jesus declares you cannot serve God and money. Here's the question you should be asking. How do I know when I have a competing allegiance? How do I know when that's taking place? Well, I would suggest you ask yourself this question. Is there anything in my life that I treasure more than God? You know, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story about a man. The man finds a treasure buried in a field, and he decides, he makes the decision in joy to go and sell all that he had, no competing allegiances, in order to buy the field. He didn't have to sell all that he had, but he wanted to sell all that he had. It says, in joy, he sold all that he had. One exclusive affection. So ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I treasure more than God? Is there anything that I have to have that would cause me to not buy the field? Whatever that is, that's your competing allegiance. You know, I think when you've been a believer maybe for a long time, you're like, I made that decision. I sold all that I had. I'm with Jesus. But boy, oh boy, as time goes on, you think about parceling out maybe some of that land and selling it so you can have Jesus and another affection. Jesus is saying you cannot serve God and money. What consumes your thinking? What consumes your time? What in your life are you willing to sin in order to get? And what in your life causes you to sin if you don't get it? So the question you're trying to answer in your heart Is God your greatest treasure? Is Jesus Christ and the salvation that is yours in him enough? Is he sufficient? Is he all that you need? The critical idea is we've got to get straight in our minds proactively. Our number one, our hearts are an idle factory. So we're constantly generating new allegiances over time. Like we put something to death and then there's a new allegiance. Our hearts are an idle factory. Number two, we need to know that there's only one way to respond. By putting those allegiances to death and by putting our hope in God. Over and over and over again. Put our hope in God, not in the deceitfulness of riches. Put our hope in God, not in the desire for other things knowing that they will never last. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You see how he did that? This is the ongoing work of the Christian life, to not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is really life. I love the end. This is life. When you set your affections on heavenly things, on eternal things, on the things of God, that's really life. This is not. This is the fake stuff, the earthly stuff, the worldly stuff. You know, one of my favorite stories on this topic comes from Genesis 35. If you can place yourself there in redemptive history, Jacob has already wrestled with God and is on his way home to the promised land, believing in the Lord. But at this point, he's a broken man. His daughter's been violated. His sons are murderers. And he's failed to seek justice. And somewhere along the way, if that wasn't bad enough, his family picks up and starts worshiping foreign gods. What does Jacob do? Verse 4 says, Jacob took all the foreign gods and all the rings that were in their ears and all their wrongly acquired wealth, and he went and he buried it under the tree at Shechem. It's helpful to know Shechem was a well-known place of idol worship. So Jacob buried the idols right where the idols were worshipped. Here's the point. We must put to death any competing allegiances in our lives, including the love of money. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we might worship God rightly through faith in Christ with radical, complete, and unswerving devotion. He alone is worthy of our worship. So as we close, let me just ask, what form, my assumption is there's one or many, What form of the love of money threatens your allegiance to God the most? Be nuanced in your heart here. Try to figure out which way the love of money is getting after you in particular. Is it the deceitfulness of riches? So the appearance of happiness that that money seems to be able to buy. Or is it the desire for other things? So, so the love of money gets after you because you're trying to keep up with other people, having all the things that others seem to have that you don't have. Or is it the peace and the comfort that stuff brings? Or the entertainment factor, the desire for excitement and adventure, taking trips, having experiences, being able to just get away from it all. Or is it living life without issues or concerns, somehow thinking that money can buy away your problems? What form of the love of money is the greatest challenge to your allegiance to God and to God alone? And what are you doing to tear down those high places in your heart so you can bury them? and put them to death. 
You need to understand, in order to bury them and in order to put them to death, these competing affections, you must be cultivating a greater love for the Lord your God. Why is that? Jesus already told us. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you treasure the things of earth, the love of money, then that's where your heart's going to be. So if you bury them, you put them to death, then you need to be cultivating a love for God. That that's where your treasure is. So that there may your heart be also. So how do you cultivate a greater love for the Lord your God? By reading God's word. By spending time in fellowship. By devoting yourself to prayer and to faithfully gathering with the saints, the people of God, to worship his holy name. And I would argue all the radical changes that those things bring about in your life. You know, I started this morning with example after example of people who have shipwrecked their faith because of the love of money. So let me close this morning by telling a story about a man who faithfully served God his entire adult life. Many of you know the name Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was a well-known pastor and author, best known for his six-volume commentary on the entire Bible. You can still get it today. Well, Matthew Henry, at one point in his life, lived in London, and as he was walking through the streets of London, he got mugged. He got robbed. So, so a guy came up to him out of nowhere, beat him, and took all of his money, emptied him of all that he had which is a pretty terrible thing. You can imagine the different thoughts that were going through Matthew Henry's mind. And yet when Matthew Henry returned home, he writes this in his journal. Lord, I thank you that I have never been robbed before. And I thank you that although they took all my money, they spared my life. But Lord, I thank you most of all that I was the one being robbed and not the one doing the robbing. Lord, I thank you that you have made me to be a man who loves God more than I love money. May God give us the grace to be people with kingdom priorities who lay up treasures in heaven fix our eyes on eternal things, and devote ourselves exclusively to God and to the things of God. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we recognize, even as we hear these words, that we are people who are rich in this world. And we recognize that that the love of money has so many roots that dig down deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray that by the work of your Spirit, you would be bringing clarity to our minds and to our hearts, that we would be honest about where it is that the love of money gets a hold of us. Lord, if there's people here this morning that the love of money has consumed them. I pray that you'd be gracious and kind 
to open their eyes to that reality and that they would fix their eyes on the Lord Jesus, that they would delight themselves in him, that they would find salvation for their souls in his finished work on the cross. Lord, for my brothers and sisters, for me this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to identify where the love of money has a hold on our lives, and I pray that we would put it to death, that we would bury it, and that we would labor to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, that we would lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, knowing that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Father, we ask that you would do that good work for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I can ask you to please stand, we'll sing our closing song this morning, Take My Life and Let It Be. Let's stand and sing together.